Thanks to all of you for coming. <coughs> this lecture will not only cover the age of discovery in the Portuguese Parliament, but it will focus on the figure of Prince Henry the Navigator, who was born in 1390, died in 1460. He was born a century before the two greatest navigators in history, Christopher Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan, who discovered America and circumnavigated the world, respectively. He's called a navigator even though he never navigated, but he designed the ships called caravels in which Columbus and Magellan sailed and which alone in the world of his day could cross oceans. His ambition encompassed the world, and in the end, inspired a Portuguese seaman to sail around He was a prince of Portugal, but his mother was English, blonde, lovely, devout Philippa of Lancaster, whose husband John was the first king of Portugal. In her veins ran the blood of the Plantagenets, the most vigorous and prolific ruling family in European history. He was uncle to Queen Isabel of Spain, the greatest woman ruler of all time, who opened up a new world for Christendom. Dark-eyed and dark-eyed and dark-haired, like his father, Henry was a dreamer, convinced that God was calling him to reveal new worlds, and he was. Samuel Eliot Morrison, the historian of the age of discovery, tells us there is a saying in Europe that, quote, God gave Portugal a very small country to live in, but all the world to die in, end quote. Prince Henry lived and died in Portugal, but the men who followed him illustrate this saying perfectly. England and Portugal, allies from the time of Philippa to this day, the oldest alliance in history anywhere, alone among the nations of Europe, face out to the sea. You can visualize the map of Europe and the world without the presence of one hint and uh, you can visualize it, they face out to the sea, the Atlantic Ocean, which men used to think rolled all around the world as the River Oceanus, the Ocean Sea. Columbus's title was Admiral of the Ocean Sea. South of Portugal lay the dark continent of Africa. In ancient times, men had circumnavigated Africa from Egypt and left a record of that voyage in the pages of the historian Herodotus. So Prince Henry knew it could be done. But he also knew that beyond Africa, somewhere in the misty distances, lay a fabled land of wealth and spices, India. Henry resolved to reach India by sea from Portugal. We know this from two Portuguese historians, one of whom knew Prince Henry personally, while the other knew men who had known him. In so doing, Prince Henry launched Europe's Age of Discovery, which opened up the whole world to its penetration. One man with a dream, one man making history. He marked the way for the bold mariners and missionaries of Christian Europe who brought the good news of Christ to millions who had never heard of him. He marked the way for St. Francis Xavier, the greatest missionary since St. Paul, who reached India, Indonesia, and Japan and died on an island off the coast of China. Prince Henry the Navigator planned it all, established a school of seamanship, designed his ship to reach far continents called a caravel, built a house and town at the southeastern tip of Europe in Portugal called Sagres, called by the English Cape St. Vincent, 
and they occur a compass rose in the sand and rock which can still be seen. I've seen it. All this the world owes to Prince Henry the Navigator of Portugal, history maker. In the, early in the 15th century, Prince Henry of Portugal began his probe into the unknown from his ivory at Sagres. Every year he sent out an expedition to sail southward along the African coast with roads to the captains who sailed farthest. As they went farther, that coast became more forbidding. It was the waste of sand we call the Sahara Desert. To be shipwrecked ashore meant certain death from thirst. Finally, Prince Henry's explorers reached a stark white cape which they named Blanco from the Portuguese word for white. Below Cape Blanco, a hook of desert clawed under the sea, Cape Bojador. It was close to the equator. The air was tarred, and beyond it the sea appeared to boil. Men said that beyond Cape Bojador, no man could sail. Prince Henry did not believe it. Neither did one of the boldest of his captains, Gileanus, who commanded the annual expedition of 1434. Ianus rounded the fearsome cape, finding that the tropical sea was hot but did not boil. He anchored on the south side and pulled up some little plants, which the Portuguese called Roses of St. Mary, to prove to Prince Henry and the people of Portugal and of Europe that life existed beyond Cape Bojador. To the south, the desert gave way to tropical jungle, an environment as strange and fearful to the prince's mariners as the desert had been. Its perils were fearfully illustrated when in 1445, Captain Nuno Tristão took 22 men and five boys up a stream where they were showered with arrows from 12 native canoes. Every man and boy was struck by the arrows, which were coated with a deadly poison, not previously encountered by the Portuguese. Weakening men pain-racked from the effects of the poison, they struggled back to their ship. Four of them died before they could reach it. The survivors no longer had the strength even to raise the ship's anchor, so they got the cable and put to sea. Soon every man was helpless from the poison. Captain Stow and all but two of his men died of it, and those two took months to recover. But the five boys survived, and among them a Portuguese boy named Iris Tanoco, who had learned seamanship and navigation and how to read and write at Prince Henry's school at Sagres. The boys could hardly wait a year for the next exploring expedition, but Iris Tanoco brought them home safe. Unfortunately, we know nothing more about Iris Tanoco or what he did in his mature life, but we can safely say that he was a man who had caught the spirit of Prince Henry the Navigator. He still had more than a thousand miles to sail to reach India, but nothing could stop them now. Before the century ended, in 1498, they had reached their goal. We know that this was Prince Henry's goal by the testimony of two men who knew him personally, who said that India had always been his goal. Furthermore, there are two papal documents in 1454 and 1456 by Popes Nicholas V and Calixtus III, giving Prince Henry, as head of the Portuguese Order of Christ, quote, ecclesiastical and ordinary jurisdiction in the islands, villages, harbors, lands, and places acquired up to be acquired as far as and through 
Guinea, all Guinea, which is the Portuguese name for West Africa, and passed that southern shore all the way to the Indies, end quote. This was Prince Henry's dream, and this is the documentary evidence supporting it. He planned it all and carried out his plan. The world would never be the same again. In the next century, the Portuguese Ferdinand Magellan would sail all the way around it. It has recently become fashionable to decry the expansion of the West into the Orient, Africa, and America, and to assert or imply that it would have been better if these regions and peoples had never encountered the West. The conflicts, misunderstandings, and bloody wars which arose out of this encounter, especially the immense evil of black slavery and all its abuses, seem at first sight to confirm this view. So devout a Catholic as Prince Henry the Navigator should assuredly have recoiled from the horrors of slavery when he saw them displayed before his eyes when the first slave cargo from Africa was discharged in Portugal in 1444. But he did not. Great and devout as he was, Prince Henry was no saint. It was to take a hundred years until a Spaniard named Peter Claver, who is a saint, gave his life to minister to black slaves and baptize them and treat their illnesses as they arrived in the new world. But the human story since Eden is always laced with evil, which the good must unceasingly fight. Even saints are sometimes on the wrong side. This is not a time in history when it's easy for the Christian believer or the Christian historian to take pride in how Christendom opened up the world outside Europe. The scenes of the Christian captains and colonists are now trumpeted from the housetops by those whose political and cultural agendas this serves. And the serious question must often deplore the contemporary impact of Western culture in an age of apostasy upon undeveloped nations. Great crimes are committed by both sides, some deliberately and other accidentally. These crimes cannot be ignored or passed over. But in the long run, the consequences of the impact on, of the Christian world upon the rest of the world were good, at least until the West largely ceased to be Christian, as it did during the accursed 20th century. No honest, reflective Oriental or African really wants to return to the society, economy, government, and way of life of his people before the West reached them, or anything that could reasonably have been expected to have developed in these societies on their, by their, developed by these societies on their own. For the most part, non-Western societies, even when highly civilized, as in China and India and Japan, were chambers of horrors. They had slavery, sodomy, and human sacrifice. China filled its imperial courts with eunuchs created by castration and bound the feet of its women so they could never walk normally because they liked the way the women, women with bound feet had to walk. This is not to speak of the horrible human sacrifice by the millions that was done in the Aztec civilization of Mexico, which the Spaniards finally destroyed. India burned its widows on pyres in the detestable custom called sati, and imprisoned all of its people in the nightmarish caste system which denied their human worth. Japan filled its land with temples where sodomy was regularly practiced and approved. All these evils were struck down and abolished by Christians, 
as was human slavery. Prince Henry the Navigator died at Sagres in November 13, 1460, at the age of 70, having lived all his life as a lay celibate, wearing a hair shirt and carrying a fragment of the true cross. He was buried in the Portuguese royal shrine. Few men who ever lived have influenced history more or done more to respond to God's orders to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. When Prince Henry was born, ocean seafaring hardly existed in Europe. Even the Norsemen had lost most of their skill and could barely reach Iceland, while Greenland and American Vinland had faded into the northern mists. Christendom was geographically entrapped by the Muslims, cut off from the rest of humanity in a small corner of the world. When Prince Henry died, mariners of his country had been exploring for 40 years. Under his patronage and inspiration were attracting kindred spirits from all over Europe. The goal of rounding Africa had been set and approved by two popes. Long as the sea road to India was, there was no doubt that eventually it traverse and the impetus of that achievement would drive explorations elsewhere, including that of Columbus, across the Atlantic. The next lecture will be on Columbus. Columbus first came to Portugal from Genoa and Italy and became a Portuguese sailor. He presented his plan to reach the Orient by sailing across the Atlantic to the Portuguese king, who turned it down because he knew that Columbus' estimate of the size of the earth was too small. In fact, it was the smallest anybody ever made. That so long a voyage as it would have been to sail from Europe to India if America had not been in the way could not have been made by any ship Europeans then possessed. Before Columbus, Prince Henry and his captains had sailed west as well as south. They reached islands in the Atlantic Ocean, one of them never found or settled before. They called it Madeira, from the Portuguese word for wood, because it was covered with virgin forest. Off the coast of Africa, a mariner named Perestrello found an island he named Porto Santo. It had some vegetation, but was mostly desert. On a return trip, Perestrello brought a pair of rabbits to the island. They and their progeny ate every scrap of green on the island, returning it all to desert. A few years later, the Portuguese sailed west, out into the Atlantic Ocean. There they discovered several small islands, which they named for the hawks which nested in them, the Azores, or Hawk Islands. And we have someone here in this room today who grew up in the Azores, Ms. Mc Mrs. Ruth Ferguson McKay. <clears throat> A few years later, oh, I said that. Uh, we know almost nothing about the Portuguese mariner who finally sailed to India. His name was Vasco da Gama. Only one contemporary account of his voyage had survived, though it was the second most important voyage in the history of the world, second only to Columbus' voyage, which discovered America. The historian of Portugal and its seamen constantly struggles with lack of documentation. The hot climate of India rots paper records. The great Lisbon earthquake, two centuries later, destroyed many of the better-preserved archives of Portugal. And there are whispers of a policy of secrecy which caused many discoveries not to be recorded at all. Whatever the explanation, the records are amazingly few, 
for so stupendous an enterprise as Prince Henry's plan and its fulfillment. So Vasco da Gama emerges suddenly unheralded, full-blown out of oblivion, in command of history's second most important voyage, which reached India from Portugal in 1497 and 1498, thus attaining the dream of Prince Henry the Navigator. Da Gama was no visionary genius like Columbus. He was a strong, broad-shouldered, silent man, heavily built with deep-set dark eyes. Though about 35 years old, when he voyaged to India, he was unmarried and had no children. Before him had come Bartholomew Diaz, who in 1488 had rounded the southern tip of Africa in weather so heavy he called it the scale of storms. Prince Henry died in, 14, and died in 1460, but his brothers, also sons of the beautiful and devout Philippa, had carried on his quest, and they decided the name of Cape of Storms sounded too daunting. So they returned it, renamed it, they renamed it the Cape of Good Hope, and that name is Remain. The Vasco da Gama sailed on July 8, 1497. The winds were fair. After a week, they passed Spain's Canary Islands and heard the thundering surf on once dreaded Cape Bojador as they rounded it in the night. Fog and storm divided the fleet, July 17th. They rejoined at the Cape Verde Islands, which the Portuguese had discovered off the equatorial coast of Africa and had already settled. From there, they sailed to the Portuguese colony of Mina on the Gold Coast of Africa. Then the Gama squared away for the open South Atlantic, crossing the equator and sailing on past the giant Congo River, which Prince Henry's captain, Diogo Cao, had discovered in 1488, until finally he reached and rounded the southern tip of Africa, which Bartholomew Diaz had named the Cape of Storms, but Prince Henry's brothers had renamed the Cape of Good Hope. This he did on November 22, 1497, to a triumphal blare of trumpets. Then he passed Cape Padroni, Bartholomew Diaz farthest east, where he erected a pillar. Soon after they had resumed their journey, a storm struck, which so frightened the sailors, they began to plead and then to demand to be taken home. The Gamma told them to trust in God and threw his navigating instruments overboard, telling his men that without them, they would never get home. He spoke words of iron resolve that it might have been said by Henry the Navigator, August for Columbus, quote, let no one speak to me of putting back. Know for certain that if I do not find what I came to seek to Portugal, I do not return, end quote. This cape didn't even mean good hope for Portugal. For after Vasco da Gama rounded it in 1497 and reached India in 1498, the Indian trade became so valuable that the king of Portugal at that time, Prince Henry's nephew Manuel, became known as Manuel the Fortune. East of India lay the Spice Islands, which grew the spices Europeans loved to eat with their meat, which flavored it and also helped to preserve it. Spices were pound for pound the most valuable crop in the world in their day. Little Portugal became the richest kingdom in all Europe, primarily due to the spice trade. It did not matter that the voyage from Portugal to India took almost a full year one way, or that one-third of all the men who made it 
did not return. I have often wondered if, when they left Portugal for India, every group of three seamen looked into one another's faces, wondering which of them would not come back. For the better part of a century, the 16th, Portuguese fleets sailed to India every single year. None ever lacked for Truman. When the new century was done, they had reached China and Japan, and their Christian evangelization had begun. So, because of Prince Henry the Navigator, millions of souls who had never heard of Christ and knew none of his languages were saved because of one man's dream and perseverance of which Christ made good use. No wonder his people, under their Catholic ruler Salazar, commemorated him in a mighty monument of discoverers which still stands. All humanity stands in Prince Henry's debt, all honor to Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal. Prince Henry died in 1460, but his brothers, also sons of the beautiful and holy Philippa, carried on his quest. Seeing the wealth that made India so rich, they soon reached the great Malay archipelago, which we call Indonesia, and which contains the Spice Islands. Two Portuguese captains, who were good friends, reached the Spice Islands first. One was named Francisco Serrano, and the other Ferdinand Magellan. Together they explored the Spice Islands, where the precious spices actually grow on trees. Ferdinand Magellan was born about 1480 in Portugal. Like Columbus, he was called to the sea from his youth. He made his first voyage in 1505 to India. He spent eight years in the East and then joined an expedition to fight the Muslims in Morocco. Magellan was a doer man whom King Manuel the Fortunate of Portugal personally disliked, but he was the greatest seaman in the world of his day, heir to all that Prince Henry had done. When King Manuel would not support Magellan's projected expedition to reach the Spice Islands by sailing west around the world, Magellan presented his plans to the King of Spain, Charles, the grandson of Queen Isabel, early in his reign. Young and eager to match fortunate Portugal, and with the imagination to grasp the greatness of what Magellan was proposing, Charles jumped to accept his plan. He commissioned Magellan, captain general of a voyage, to find a water route to the East Indies. Though neither Charles nor Magellan nor anyone else at that time knew how big South America really is, nor had they any idea of the size of the Pacific Ocean on the other side of it. On September 20th, 1519, Magellan, having dedicated his expedition to Our Lady of Victory and named one of his ships, Victoria, set sail with five ships on what the great seagoing historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, historian of the Age of Discovery, has called, quote, the greatest voyage in the annals of the sea. It was nothing less than the first circumnavigation of the world led by a Portuguese, a spiritual, <coughs> spiritual son of Prince Henry the Navigator. <coughs> Magellan was not a happy company. He had only one captain whom he could trust, Juan Serrano, brother of his dear friend Francisco, who had reached the Spice Islands with him. All the other captains were Spanish and shared their king's dislike of Magellan as a foreigner. But Magellan was undisturbed by their dislike. 
he was always in command. When he changed course off the coast of Africa and one of the hostile Spanish captains, Juan de Cartagena, asked why, Magellan snapped back, quote, follow me and ask no questions. Magellan deliberately sailed his fleet into the doldrums, that area of the Atlantic Ocean where the winds rarely blow and ships can be becalmed for long periods under the broiling sun. He and his men sweltered and suffered for three weeks until the currents brought them into the trade winds, but he had achieved his goal. He had safely avoided capture by a Portuguese fleet that had been sent out to intercept him, never suspecting that Magellan would deliberately become his whole fleet. At sea, Cartagena attempted to gold Magellan into a quarrel during a captain's meeting. Magellan remained calm. By doing so, provoke Cartagena into declaring his intention to disobey the Captain General's orders. This insubordination was exactly what Magellan was waiting for. He called out his Marines, who had been hiding behind the door, and Cartagena was arrested for mutiny, relieved of his command, and confined to his cabin. On December 13, 1519, Magellan's flagship, the Trinidad, led the way to an anchorage in Brazil near, at the present site of Rio de Janeiro. Magellan named it Santa Lucia Bay since it was St. Lucia's feast day. A second attempt at mutiny took place when a friend of Cartagena released him from custody so that he could seize control of a whole fleet. Magellan easily put down this, this attempt but felt all the more strongly his isolation and lack of friends. The fleet was repaired and reprovisioned, and on Christmas Day resumed its voyage southward. Passing Brazil, which Portugal had claimed, Magellan sailed south along the then unknown coast of South America. A few maps of his day seemed to show a strait through the American continent in the far south. Whether reflecting knowledge gained through Chinese exploring expeditions or merely the imagination of map makers with visions of a southern continent to match the land masses in the north, Magellan believed the strait was real and searched for, searched for it. Throughout the month of January, Magellan explored every inlet, only to find them all of them turning to fresh water or becoming too shallow to navigate. The men were restless and the weather was turning bad. On February 2nd, 1521, the captain general faced another crisis. The Spanish captains had persuaded the entire crew to meet for a vote on whether to continue down the coast or to return to the pleasant climate of Santa Lucia Bay for the winter. But Magellan had given his oath to Charles V not to turn back until the Indies were reached. He persuaded them that they would soon find the straits and sail into balmy seas. They voted to continue the journey for they already knew, as Morrison points out, that Magellan was the best seaman they had ever seen. There were no balmy seas to the south. It was the southern winter in the latitudes sailors related to call the roaring forties. The weather became worse as wintry gales and icy seas battered the ships. In the roaring forties, the wind sweeps unhindered around the world. There being no bland to stop it. Magellan's flagship, the Trinidad, was in the lead, with Magellan standing in the prow. 
For 60 days he had no real rest and never wore a dry garment. No fires could be lighted, so the men ate cold food. Their water so clothes froze and their beards grew icicles. Magellan suffered with his men, taking no special privileges. By the middle of March, the Captain General realized that his men had reached the limit of their endurance, but it was two more weeks before they found a suitable anchorage. On March 31st, he found a shelter anchorage which Magellan named Port St. Julian on the coast, now Argentine, he called Patagonia. Again, his Spanish captain mutinied, led by the malcontent Juan de Cartagena, this time getting control of three ships and preparing an attack on the Trinidad. Magellan regained control of one of the ships by sending a man with a confidential letter for the mutinous captain. Foolishly, the captain took them on board and even brought the men to his cabin. He was captured and killed, and the ship brought to the Trinidad side. Then a loyal crewman cut the anchor cable of a second mutinous ship, which drifted toward the Trinidad and was personally captured by Magellan. At this, Cartagena and the third vessel was forced to surrender. A formal trial was held of the remaining two mutinous captains. One was hanged, and Cartagena was marooned at Port St. Julian on the desolate coast of Patagonia. Magellan thus left Cartagena at the end of the world. The last sight his crewmen saw as they sailed away from Port St. Julian was the arrogant Spanish captain kneeling on shore, begging for mercy, pleading not to be abandoned. They remembered there was never another mutiny against Ferdinand Magellan. Low on provisions, Magellan could not afford to wait out the long Atlantic and Arctic winter, so he sent to Santiago under Captain Serrano to find the strait. After 16 miserable days of sailing, the ship was wrecked, <clears throat> but Serrano got all his men safely to shore. Two men volunteered to return to Port St. Julian. After 11 days of suffering, they staggered into Magellan's camp. He immediately sent out a rescue crew, which brought Serrano and all his men back safely. On August 24, 1520, the four remaining ships left Port St. Julian to sail to an anchorage that Serrano had discovered. On October 18th, they departed, two ships going to explore a large bay and the other two continuing the search for the strait. When two searching ships returned, they were flying flags and firing cannon. They had discovered the strait, which now bears the name of the Captain General, the Straits of Magellan. He took his ships through the Straits of Magellan, 334 miles of the most difficult sailing in the world. One vessel, San Antonio, deserted and went back to Spain. Beyond lay a vast ocean, the largest in the world, which Magellan named the Pacific. Balboa had seen it from Panama years before, but Magellan was the first to sail across it. On November 28, 1520, he emerged from it, he emerged from it, into it, from the Straits of Magellan. He remained undaunted, as always, bowing to cross this waste of waters, quote, even if they had to eat the chafing gear on the ship's yards. And quote, as Morrison laconically notes, this is exactly what they did. Believing that the Spice Islands could not be far away, the three remaining ships set out across the Pacific. For two months they sailed out of sight of land, 
longest time ever in the history of sailing until then that a ship had been out of sight of land. They crossed a third of the Pacific, his food spoiled in the tropical heat, and water turned bad. On January 24th, St. Paul's Feast Day, they reached an island which they named for the saint. Here they found water, fish and seabirds, but no fruits or vegetables. Nevertheless, they were sure that they would now frequently come upon islands and weight anchor on January 28th. They saw one small island on February 13th, and then again sailed through the nightmare of endless seas. They ate all the food they had. They ate the scrapings from the food barrels. They ate the rawhide wrappings from the masts. On March 5th, there was nothing at all left to eat. Nineteen men had already been buried at sea. Twenty-five more were dying of scurvy. Those who were still on their fleet were too weak to handle the sails. So Magellan left them up all the time. The next morning, a seaman named Navarro climbed the ropes to look for land. He was one of the few men left with strength enough to do so. Suddenly, a great cry was torn from his throat. Praise God! Land! Land! They had reached the island of Guam and found there plenty of food to eat. But they could not linger because the natives were hostile. They sailed on. On April 7, 1521, arrived in the Philippines, named for Philip, Charles V's son and successor. It was the second time in his life that Magellan had anchored in these islands. For earlier, in 1512, sailing with Francisco Serrano from Malaya to the South China Sea, he'd come upon the Philippines. Since he'd reached the same islands as the second time, but from the opposite direction, he is thus the first man ever to complete the circumnavigation of the globe. Magellan proceeded to explore the islands. He made friends with one of the kings and traded with him. The king even accepted baptism, as did many other natives, mainly because of Magellan's influence. He seemed to be caught up in a spiritual purpose for his expedition. But the Spanish officers in his ships still hated him in spite of the miracle he had worked by bringing his ships safely so far, and tragedy followed. On April 27, 1521, Magellan and the Christian natives were engaged in a battle <clears throat> with hostile Filipino pagans. Magellan and a few of his men were pinned down on the shore until he was overwhelmed and killed. Juan Sebastian Elcano, a Basque from the north of Spain, took Magellan's place insofar as anybody could. The 108 surviving crewmen abandoned one of the ships. Beyond the Philippines, they reached their goal, the Spice Islands, on November 8, 1521. The Trinidad was leaking, so it was left behind to follow later. One ship, the Victorious, survived. With Alcano in command, it completed the magnificent voyage, reaching Spain with 47 of her original crew in December 1522. It had taken them more than three years to sail around the world. They came back around the Cape of Good Hope. Thirty-one men returned to the Victoria, five survivors, and, and uh, five survivors from the Trinidad later. The Victoria carried in its hold sufficient spices to pay the expenses of the entire voyage. Francisco Serrano, the first Portuguese to reach the Spice Islands, was already dead killed about the same time as Magellan. Prince Henry the Navigator did not live to see it, but he would have understood 
what they had done and why they had done it, or he had shown the way. Prince Henry had launched the age of discovery, and Magellan had fulfilled it. Ferdinand Magellan was his truest heir. Along with Columbus, they were the supreme history makers of their era. If you want to read more about it, I have a list of books at the end of the next speech.